Well, we talk about something this morning that's been part of the public conscience of every culture since the dawn of history. It's goodness. Goodness. Now, we Christians know that it is this concept, an immemorial concept, really, and it was defined before the fall and brought into stark contrast with its opposite evil after the fall. And since then, philosophers and priests, politicians and poets of the ancient and modern worlds have all tried to capture the essence of both good and evil. Musicians have sung about it. Artists have portrayed it in various mediums. The Brothers Grimm have romanticized it in stories for children. Nevertheless, good and evil have not only been mainly misunderstood throughout time, but each has all too often been mistaken for the other. Wait a minute, what? Is that true? Well, would you expect anything less in a fallen world? The Bible gives several examples throughout ancient history where people actually call good evil and evil good. Just one example will suffice here. Isaiah was a prophet during a corrupt leadership that gave God himself, that God himself describes this way. He says that they are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Such men, we're told in Isaiah 5, verse 20, call good evil and evil good. How can that possibly be? I mean, it's hard enough to believe that one person could mistake one for the other, but an entire political administration? Really? Has not history repeated itself today? Are we not witnessing the same thing happening in our country? We still live in a fallen world, beloved, where powerful people are wise in their own eyes, a worldly wisdom will get it wrong every time when it comes to God's virtues. The Bible's definition of good just won't work for them, you see, and not just for secular politicians. It doesn't work for religious people either. They're really the, the cream of society, if you will. Take the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Now, they wrongly applied the eye-for-an-eye principle and they taught that it was good to get even with someone who insults you, right? One good backhander to the cheek deserves another. But God says it's good to take the insult and return compassion. They said it's bad to be defrauded and encouraged stiff litigation that sues for triple damages. But God says that it is good to be defrauded and leave church matters out of secular courts for the sake of Christ's reputation. The average person on the street would admit that it is bad to be pr prosecuted for being lawful, which again seems to be the order of the day in our nation. But scripture says it's good when that happens to you, for that finds favor with God. What is going on? Some huge differences here, folks. The world tells us one thing about goodness and the Bible, something completely different. So which do you believe? Well, I trust that you believe the Bible. And going on that confident assumption, I'll say let's go there to set the record straight 
with regard to goodness as we examine the fruit of the Spirit that Paul calls goodness. Now, I've developed our um, examination in what you might call stages. There are nine of them. They're published for you, and we'll go through them uh, one at a time. The first is really foundational, and it is this, that goodness is sourced in God. That isn't anything that would surprise you. I would remind you that the fruit of the Spirit is fruit of the Spirit, which is actually sourced in him. He is God, and God himself is good. And so goodness is one way God characterizes the sum of his attributes. In fact, he told Moses back in Exodus 33, verse 19, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. Moses saw the essence of God, which God called his goodness. For the psalmist of Psalm 16, verse 2, that's David, the only good thing that David said he had himself was God. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good besides you. Now since goodness is sourced in God and all uh, uh, we, we're, um, uh, we're safe in assuming that all goodness comes from him, Psalm 84 verse 11 says that no good thing does God withhold from those who walk uprightly. So this good God, where goodness is uh, sourced in him, is the one who gives or doles out goodness. James 1 verse 17 echoes this declaration. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And let's not forget the comforting statement in Romans 8 28, that God works all to the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purposes. So God being good is the source from which all goodness comes to creation. And we're not surprised, therefore, that the Bible clearly tells us that no one then is good, nor is good or can do any good apart from God. David knew this, and he said in Psalm 14:1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and they have committed abominable deeds there is no one who does good. Those are David's words. This is, an, this is interesting, or, or I should say the interesting thing about this psalm is that those who are claiming that there is no God are not atheists. Maybe you didn't realize that. You'd be hard-pressed to find one in the ancient Near East. They were all pantheists. In fact, they had many gods. So... The, the, the sentiment here reflects their denial of Yahweh as being the one true God. And as religious as they were, God says they were not good because they had no part with him. Same is true today. You will find true goodness, or you won't find true goodness among the world's religious or the world's moral. Now, that leads us to the next stage of development here in our presentation of goodness. God is not only the source of goodness, but we also maintain that he is our divine role model for how to be good. If you, know, if you want to know what good is, you need to look at God and understand how he shows goodness. And in that, he becomes our divine role model. So Christians imitate God when they manifest the fruit of the Spirit. 
especially with regard to goodness. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 5.16 that the world will link our good deeds to God, hopefully with the result that they will praise him. He said it this way, let our light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. If we be like Christ, we will be like Christ in all his spiritual virtues, including goodness. Number three, I want to say that only born-again believers then can express true goodness. Only born-again believers. If goodness is sourced in God, and only God is good, and no one apart from God is good, then those who are in Christ have God's goodness. And that's why we say only born-again believers can express true goodness. To use the words of 3, of, of 3 John 11, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Only genuine Christians, then, can display these godly virtues. After all, all the commands to do good in the Bible are directed only to Christians. Listen to Romans 12, just as a, an example, a slice of what we're talking about. Romans 12, 10 to 14. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give per preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in, in diligence. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Paul will say the same thing, essentially, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. He says, while we have the opportunity, let us do, God, do good to all people. These commands are to believers only. Implication is that only believers can express true goodness. That brings us then to number four. If that is the case, and it is, then all born-again believers will express goodness. There's an emphasis on the will. Ephesians 2.10 clearly states that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. So, beloved, there's never any question that a follower of Christ will practice goodness. If he doesn't, then he's not a follower of Christ. The key word here is practice. A practice of goodness and a believer who is not characterized by goodness or any other of the spiritual fruit here needs to examine his faith, plain and simple. It brings us to number five. And if what we've said in the first four are true, then number five really becomes sort of a warning to us. The world offers a counterfeit goodness, as it does to every one of the fruits of the Spirit. And we should be aware of that. You might, as you might expect, the world has its own version of goodness, right along with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And what they display in the name of goodness at times is really only a spiritual count, is, is, is different um, uh, by kind from its spiritual counterpart. We know that their best is only a mere vestige 
of the goodness that human beings were meant to show before the fall. It may look like the genuine article, but it isn't. It is different in kind. Now, I want to digress for a moment and just say a word to the nature and danger of counterfeit. I don't think that many in the church realize that the more Christian a non-Christian acts like, the more deceptive and dangerous that person is to the church. I say that out of years of experiencing churchgoers become easily swayed into giving an unbeliever a pass for eternity by the counterfeit fruit that he displayed and that, and that, and that they would even put many Christians, uh, sorry, that the, the person displays that would put many Christians to shame is what I'm trying to say. The, the counterfeit good works puts many Christians to shame. And that's actually very misleading to some. Oh, she's so kind, somebody says. I know she, she goes to that Unitarian church down the street and, and doesn't use our lingo, but, but, but I think she knows God. Someone else says, well, he, he's a really good person. He's so devote, a de, a devout to his uh, religion, even though he's not made a profession of faith. I just know he has a relationship with God. But why should we think that these two people are any closer to the kingdom of heaven than, than some hardcore prisoner, some hardcore criminal who's incarcerated and does evil only continually? Think about that. Think that through. I would submit to you that putting these three together the kind Unitarian woman and the devout religious man are actually in a much worse position than the hardened criminal because they mistakenly think that they're better than he is and have earned God's acceptance by their good works. But the truth is, the criminal has simply displayed more of his depravity than the other two, and they're just as lost as he is for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What's worse, they're deceived, thinking that they're just fine, while the criminal knows that he's a sinner and deserves hell. Sadder still, Christians who don't know the word well are more apt to, to be deceived by the counterfeit goodness of these two religious people and see the situation the same way. Oh, how important it is for us to know the word well. It tells us plainly that the fruit of the Spirit differs from anything that the world will produce. It differs by nature. I made that point just in passing, and now in number six I want to develop it. The fruit of the Spirit differs by nature from its worldly counterpart. To put it very simply, the the good that the world produces is not God's version of spiritual goodness. It isn't, and it never will be. Let me prove this to you with just two passages. The first is Luke 6, verses 27 to 35, which was our scripture reading this morning. Now, There Jesus tells us that spiritual goodness allows us to do remarkable things, such as love enemies, Bless those who curse us. Pray for those who abuse us. Return insults with compassion. Put ourselves out 
to help those who mistreat us. Be givers and not takers, and, and give to those in need without expecting repayment. Now, that's also counterintuitive to the world's version of goodness, which allows them to accomplish unremarkable things, like love only those who will love them, and do good only to those who do good to them. The contrast reveals a clear element, you see, of selfishness in worldly goodness. This is why it's different by nature. The second passage is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, which uses the same Greek word translated goodness in Galatians 5.22. Well, Paul establishes first in verse 8 that goodness is exclusive to born-again believers. Exclusive. Who should therefore practice goodness. This is what he says. For you were once darkness, but now... You are light in the Lord. Walk, therefore, as children of the light. Now notice that Paul contrasts between what we were before and what we were or what we are after conversion. That's what he contrasts. He says, before we were by nature darkness. He doesn't say we were in the darkness or or anything remotely uh, resembling that, he says we were darkness. And what he means by that is that we were depraved, we were wicked. After conversion, we are light. We have, in other words, the imputed goodness and righteousness of Christ. Paul then draws the application from this contrast. If this is true, if you're no longer darkness but you're light, then you need to behave that way. You need to walk in a manner that is worthy of children of light. If you're good in Christ, live that way. It doesn't make any sense for you to behave in a way that is consistent with darkness because you're not that anymore. You see, a new natured person produces a lifestyle consistent with a new nature. Well, okay, so far so good. Now, verse 9 is important, especially because it's a parenthetical thought that, that Paul introduces into the, into the text here. And it further explains this idea of the fruit of a person or his behavior and how it must be consistent with his nature. The verse says, For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. The preposition for, at the beginning of the verse, within the parenthesis, is what we call an, an explanatory preposition, or an explanatory for. It really has an explanatory force to it. We could translate it something like, you see, or that is to say, and with it, Paul then goes on to explain that to walk as children of light means that means that you will, be, you will be bearing fruit that is consistent with the light, and that fruit is goodness. Paul says, it, says, in essence, we know that goodness is the right fruit of children of light because only light produces goodness as well as righteousness and truth. So Christians are not darkness by nature, 
They are light by nature, and, and as a result of that, they will produce goodness because darkness cannot produce goodness. It can produce a counterfeit. Something looks real close, but it is different entirely by nature. This is probably a good time, I think, as any, to give you a working definition of spiritual goodness. What do we mean when we say goodness? Spiritual goodness is a moral excellence and goodwill that seek the best interest of one's neighbor. It is the moral excellence and the goodwill that seek the best interest of one's neighbor. Now, did you notice that there are two aspects to that definition of spiritual goodness, two aspects to goodness? There is intent and there is action, or there is a faith and there is a form, or there is a behavior and there is motivation, two aspects to goodness. So let's go deeper here and get very practical, as practical as we can. By intent, by intent, I mean the motivation behind acts of goodness. When I say that goodness is partly intent, I'm saying that which motivates us to the act. Let's understand that this fruit of the Spirit has to do with our intentions towards people. No matter who we relate to, relative, a friend, an acquaintance, yes, even an enemy, we are to relate to him in such a way that we have his best interest in mind. And that's a large part of goodness. That is how God shows his goodness. Bottom line is that our motive, our intention, is to show people goodwill. So far, so good. Now, the flip side of intention is action. Physical acts of goodness, acts that are measurable and tangible and demonstrable. They're unmistakable. People can see them. The commands abound in the New Testament. We pray for people. We encourage them. We teach them, admonish them, disciple them. We counsel and minister to them. We lead them. We evangelize people. We feed the poor, tend to the widows, submit to husbands, love our wives, obey our parents, present a good work ethic, and on and on it goes, filled with commands to be good. Those are the acts. Now hear this, all right? We've got the intention, we've got the action. Together, we have got goodness. Hear this. Only when good intention is wed with good action does genuine spiritual goodness exist only when the two are wed together. So I want to say that God condemns a right act that is sinfully motivated, just as much as he does sinful acts that are well-intentioned. That may or may not be obvious to you, but it may surprise you to know that it is not obvious to many in the church today. Some place great importance on the practice of doing good without any consideration of all at all of godly intent while others will argue quite aggressively that 
The only thing that's important is motive, and they give no consideration to whether they are committing sinful acts in the process. Let's consider good actions that are sinfully motivated. You can get involved in quite a bit of ministry. You can do a great deal of church work, perform all kinds of good works to others in various contexts, all with wrong motives. We call that doing ministry on your own strength. The Pharisees of Jesus' day are the poster boys of this. They always put on a, a good show of spirituality. Yet Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. They praised God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. Now, within the church, Paul speaks in 2 Timothy 3.5 of false teachers who are holding to a form of godliness, although they denied its power. Now, that means that they were playing church. They were going through the motions for personal gain. And who can forget Ananias and Sapphira? who gave with wrong motives, and they were judged on the spot. Going through the motions of the faith with wrong motives amounts to a works-oriented faith, a legalism, a Pharisaism, hypocrisy, and yes, in some cases, even apostasy. Religious people are certainly under the impression that they can be justified by their own works. They don't realize that they cannot act like Christians before they become Christians. Many believers put stock in the outward forms of the faith at the expense of godly motives. So rather than seek forgiveness from God and an offender, a Christian might simply add on more ministry to his good works column as a way of personally atoning for his sin. You see how that works? Others develop legalistic checkpoints. <laughs> a list of good works that they, they believe they need to complete each week if they're to remain in God's good stead or good graces or to reach a super spiritual status, whatever that is. Don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm an advocate of availing ourselves of the ordinary means of grace, personal Bible study, prayer, service, devising strategies to better implement important biblical principles. This is certainly needed. It's the mistaken impression that there is some redeeming value in the literal forms of our faith that I'm against. It's a lie. Look at the Pharisees again. They prayed in public, with a loud voice, with gestures, only to be, be condemned by Jesus as hypocrites. What did the form do for them? Now, God is pleased with acts only when they are backed by godly motives. When our hearts are right, then our godly behavior is acceptable. Remember, it's, it was the tax collector, not the Pharisee, who went home justified before God. Now we need to address the other side of this too, and that would be godly motivation behind sinful acts. Oh yes. While we can perform a godly activity with sinful motives, we can just as easily back sinful acts with godly motives. And this is just as bad. In other words, Christians can behave sinfully, but mean well. But I meant well. The problem is, godly motives alone do not excuse sinful behavior. Such a 
position must, misunderstands the way faith is lived out. It, it says that as long as, as long as my intentions are right, form doesn't matter, but both are needed. Both are needed. And when we commit this kind of abuse, we're guilty of becoming complacent in our spirituality. So to come full circle, spiritual goodness is goodwill toward others that is manifest in biblical activity. And we might say goodwill toward others is the form of, of godly actions. It's treating others in a godly way with their best interest in mind. That should be our motive. And let me be quick to say God defines what is best for someone. I don't know if you realize that, but when you think about acting toward a neighbor, whoever the neighbor is, even an enemy. If we're out for that person's best interest, it is God who defines that person's best interest. And that's very important. It is not what the person wants us to seek for him or her. God says it's in the best interest of the sinner to confront him with the gospel, with the hope of leading him to Christ. Now, he might not think so. And he might tell you to get lost and stop bothering him. And to confront a wayward brother with love and God's counsel with a hope of bringing him to repentance and change. Sometimes God's best for someone is church discipline or to bring Caesar into the situation in order to arrest someone's irrational and harmful behavior. Well, I could go on, but I think you get the idea. No doubt spiritual goodness is something we need to practice with all humility and with all precision depending on God's word to inform us. Which brings me to say, number seven, we cannot go to the world to nurture this goodness. That's not where you want to go to nurture your goodness. Now, we've addressed this element several times before, and I think it's worth repeating. The world holds nothing of any redeeming value for the Christian and it is the last place we ought to go for direction and guidance and morality or wisdom for life and godliness. Now we have all, we've already mentioned the counterfeit aspects of the faith and of the fruit of the Spirit that circulate around in abundance, presenting themselves to us without the substance that we find in the genuine article. The world takes aspects of life, you see, and strips them of their theological significance, coats them with some powdered sugar, and arrays them before us in an appealing way. But the world's wisdom has nothing to offer us, beloved, nothing. The world system promotes tolerance at the expense of truth, pluralism at the expense of the only right way to live before God and with God promotes immorality and sin under the name of morality and purity. And especially with regard to our study today, presents evil as good and good as evil. David himself discerned this, and he wouldn't be taken in by it. He says in Psalm 52, verses 1 and 2, Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The loving kindness of God endures all day long. Your tongue devises destruction like a, a sharp razor, O worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, falsehood more 
than speaking what is right. Why would we ever retreat to the world's strategies for godliness? Makes absolutely no sense. In times of need, we, we don't resort to philosophy, psychology, science, human wisdom, or tradition, but to a sympathetic high priest who sits enthroned on the throne of grace. And against the backdrop of all of this is his sufficient word that defines life accurately. It gives absolute truth. It has God's covenant promises, his perfect will for our lives, God's grace to bear us up under the persecution that comes with living obediently and practicing true goodness. We've been fully equipped for every good work. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We have prayer, the gifts that God has given to the church to nurture us. It makes no sense, and it is a sad thing when the church looks to the world for answers to life and godliness instead of to the author of life who has given us his revelation. I think that the temptation to adopt worldly practices and its viewpoint with regard to what is good, what it looks like, and what it really means to be good is, is when we're catching heat for practicing true spiritual goodness. That's when we're most tempted. It may well, we may, goodness may well lose us friendships and disrupt family unity, jeopardize our jobs. Since true good will, goodwill, living out God's truth and caring for someone enough to tell him God's truth, whether in evangelism or in edification, we're bound to catch heat for that. And it's in those moments when you're tempted to redefine God's virtues that you need to stand your ground. Don't remove the divinely ordained sting that God's goodness causes the world. There is a reason for it. The good news for us is that, number eight, we can learn how to bear the fruit of the Spirit increasingly better. We can learn how to be better at being good. Really? How, how do I become better at goodness? Well, to practice it more, for sure. Practice being good, as God defines goodness. But with that, beloved, I would say that as you do, you need to trust God for the consequences. This is very important. It's an important principle. Listen to 1 Peter 4.19. Entrust yourself to God in the doing of good. Entrust yourself to God in the doing of good. What's Peter's command to us exactly here? Well, trust God for doing good in the way that he defines good. Well, why do I need to trust God for that? Well, because the reason is simply that the world does not accept God's kind of goodness. And when you practice it, you will surely be persecuted for it. And when you are, then you can trust that God is honored, he is pleased with you, and he will use the consequences of your good deeds, no matter how terrible they may get, ultimately for your good and his glory. Now, this has to be one of the more difficult aspects of the Christian life. 
just a few verses before this, in verse 16, Peter says, If anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but he is to glorify God in this name. You get the impression that, that Christians were tempted to be ashamed of living this way, of shamed of being a Christian, of being good. But Peter tells them that, that it is rather an honorable way for anyone who bears the name of Christ. It's a privilege to suffer unjustly for the name, and it brings glory to God. Now, these are not empty words by the apostle. You might remember that after Peter and John were beaten by the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem for doing good that God commanded them to do, Luke says they left the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Do you think Peter knew what it meant to put his life in God's hands for doing for doing the good that he was called to practice? Oh, no question. No question. He knew it so well that it, that it becomes a major theme in his first epistle. Listen to 1 Peter 2.20. If when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure, this finds favor with God. And he follows that up with this. We have been called for this, that is, to suffer. And then later in chapter 3, verses 16 and 7, he urges us to keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which we are slandered, those who revile our good behavior in Christ will be put to shame, for it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right. How are you at trusting, the con- trusting God with the consequences of your obedience? Are you willing to do the good that God has called you to do in his word, even if persecution waits? It's not easy. We admit that. We can act out in the flesh very easily. We can keep silent when we should speak up. We can take revenge rather than leave it with God. We can slander when we should praise. We can become enraged when we should be compassionate. We must follow Christ's lead, who, Peter says, while being abusively insulted, did not insult in return, while suffering did not threaten, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus practiced goodness, and when persecuted for it, he left the matter with God, trusting that God will do what is right at the proper time. Now, I would also say that to become better at practicing goodness, we need to avoid counterfeit goodness and expose anything that would war against true goodness. Many Christians excuse themselves from this by arguing that it's not their responsibility to be exposing, to be judging others. Well, aside from the fact that Jesus commands us to judge the behavior of others who claim to be Christians, Jude tells us to expose error. And Paul's words are very similar in Ephesians 5.11. Do not participate in unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. Now, that is not to say that we are supposed to go on a witch hunt for counterfeit acts of goodness in the faith. In the first place, we're not responsible with 
with what takes place in other churches, unless a church establishes a relationship with us, and then we're bound to expose any error that might come at us. And if someone asked me about whether I would recommend a particular church or not, I would certainly be honest and tell them why I would or wouldn't. But our job is not to clean up American Christianity. That's not our job. Our job is to clean up ourselves first, and then it's to clean up our church body of any counterfeit. Having said that, we don't have to go looking for counterfeit stuff because it'll find you. And when it does, your job is to confront it with a view to correcting it. Finally, I would say prioritize your good works. Prioritize your good works. If you want to learn to be better at doing good, prioritize your good works. Direct your effort first to the members of the church and then to others outside. What do I mean by that? Well, Paul's statement in Galatians 6.10 is helpful here. He said that when we have an opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So that would mean the church first. Luke shows us in Acts 2, 42 to 47, what was important to the health of the first church was a commitment to apostolic teaching, communal worship, practicing the Lord's Supper, communal prayer, and fellowship. And then he gives an extended word on their sincere and rich fellowship, explaining that they ministered to those among them who were in need even to the point where they sold their property to do it. And Jesus would then tell his disciples later that the one distinguishing mark of the church would be that his members love one another. We always need to be putting the spiritual well-being of the church ahead of the world. It's very important. Finally, just to cap this off, I think we would be remiss if we didn't mention that there is an evangelistic element to godly goodness. Performing the good that God calls us to do complements the gospel message and it allows us opportunity to give it. Remember, we don't do good to people just for the sake of doing good or for goodness sake. And most people who use that term leave God out of it used to refer to him, doesn't anymore. But we don't do it for the sake of just being good. We do it for the sake of working our way into their lives with the gospel. That's why we give a cold glass of water. That's why we clothe someone, feed someone. It is in hopes of showing them that what Christ has to offer is infinitely better. This is why Paul admonished us to keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Peter said the same thing. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter has evangelism in mind. He tells Christian wives with unbelieving husbands, about how they may win their husbands over to the gospel by their good example. 1 Peter 3, first two verses, in the same way you wives, 
be subject to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won over without a word by the behavior of their wives. Biblical, spiritual, divine goodness has that kind of impact. And wrapping this up then, I think I can summarize all that we have said today about spiritual goodness in just two simple words that I know after our time in the Word together will make great sense to you, both intellectually and practically. They are these. Be good. Be good. And Father, we do pray that you will find us exercising this wonderful fruit of the Spirit that people will come to see Christ's goodness in us, that we would manifest this quality in physical, tangible, measurable ways, that it would be unmistakable to those around us, so that by being on the receiving end of our goodness, they would come to know and, and be convinced that you are good and that your gospel is good and that Christ is good, and that repentance and faith are good. And Father, we pray that in those moments you would be pleased to bring about repentance and faith indeed, and save your elect. We pray then your patience with us, O God, as we show goodness to each other and to this world for your honor and for your glory and for the benefit of your church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.